Matthew chapter 8. We're moving through the book of Matthew. We've been studying this for a few months. We jumped back to the Bible passages that cover the, uh, the, what we consider the Christmas story in uh, the last few weeks, and we're going to go back to where we left off after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 8. So let's get a little running start into this. The gospel writer, Matthew, is trying to tell his mainly Jewish, some Gentile, but mainly Jewish readers, some 30 years after Jesus was died, had died, was resurrected, how um, it is that he could be the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. So we take, we looked at the first few chapters and how he ties over and over again the Old Testament and pulls the Old Testament and the New Testament together and says, this is the one to whom the entire Old Testament was pointing, and here's how we look at that. So we, we looked at that for a number of weeks, at all the different pictures of, of Jesus being the new Moses, the new Abraham, uh, Elijah, how he um, was the fulfillment uh, of the Old Testament. And so then this uh, story of his birth and how he is the Son of God and fully God, fully man, God with us, And then his first teaching from the mountaintop, like Moses, telling us what the kingdom, what the law is. And we uh, looked at that, we we call the Sermon on the Mount. Right after that, this this chapter 8 is immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. Please remember, as you read books like Matthew, this is not chronological. This is not happening like, oh, well, he walked to do this healing, and then he walked from that house to do this healing. We tend to read stories like that. And this, he is uh, giving us a book that's theological. He's trying to teach us something. So he's pieced together stories that either he eyewitnessed or were gathered by the apostles saying, hey, you remember the time Jesus took, you know, Thomas and me? Y'all weren't there, but we went over there and we did this. And so they shared as a community all these stories. And so Matthew is taking what, what they would have had as a body of stories and is piecing together to try to tell his readers, many of whom are under intense persecution at this point by Rome. Remember, when this is being written, Christians are not well-liked in their culture. They're being blamed by Nero for so much. And so he's trying to convince them and tell them, don't forget that Jesus is who he said he was. God come in human form. And this is what they gave their lives for, the apostles. And so as, as Matthew is compiling these stories, we now have what he does is he takes a teaching like the Sermon on the Mount about what the kingdom of God is. And now what he does is he has Jesus demonstrating in real time, real life, what the kingdom of God looks like. These first three stories are of healing. There's basically three things that Jesus did to demonstrate the power of God. He he does more than just the power of God, but he demonstrates in healing, in freeing people from demonic activity, and in showing how he's greater than nature, and then what they call the nature miracles, which includes raising people from the dead, but calming the storms and that kind of thing. But the first thing, and one of the things that Jesus was most associated with, is healing. So we have three stories of healing. And you know Jesus healed a lot of people. There's way more than even we have recorded. We're told there's just so much he did. So we have to look carefully why these stories, right? Luke, Mark, 
Matthew all look at many healing stories, and those were just a small percentage of what they would have personally witnessed. Remember, Jesus was, was the, the, a star. He, he was like had the paparazzi after him. We're told that in verse 1. He comes down from the mountain, and large crowds are following him, right? That to me, I mean, some people think they want to be famous. Like I've said, I do not. I don't want, like when I walk out my door and to get people taking my, I don't want that. I don't know about you, but Jesus thought it was a hindrance to his ministry, having all this attention. We live in a culture that craves attention, and the more likes you get or the more hits you get or whatever, right, that, that determines your popularity. And Jesus saw that as a hindrance, but he couldn't hide it. You can't put your light under a bushel. When, when he is teaching with the authority that he did, when he's acting and healing with that kind of miraculous power, just like today, you couldn't hide it. You really couldn't hide it in first century Palestine either, so that he's now got crowds following him. So as that popularity, though, he now chooses three stories. And I want to take each one briefly, and then I want to talk about why I think, and again, I'm just... I'm going to lay out what I think. The Bible doesn't say this is why these three stories were chosen, but I'm going to offer you something. It's not only my thought. Commentators, you know, there's some commentators would also see this, but, but I think it's a really good thing for us to notice. The first story is about a leper, and it says, verse 2, if you'll read along with me, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. It's a very dramatic story. It's one that all three of what they call the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seeing alongside the same story, all three attest to this. It's one of the best attested miracles that even people who are very skeptical of the Bible being a divinely inspired book would say this, this is you know, what everybody thought happened. Why? Why this story? Well, leprosy, this is not necessarily Hansen's disease, what we know as leprosy. This would be any infectious skin disease. Leviticus 13 and 14, or is it, maybe it's 17 and 18. Anyway, Leviticus has two chapters that speak very intensely, uh, 13 and 14, speak very intensely about what you do in a community situation when a skin disease that is contagious happens, right? Public health is going to be a concern as you're living in close quarters. But what happens is, is that the priest becomes functions in, in sort of a medical role. The Bible says, this Old Testament law says, go to the priest and show yourself. And the priest is given instructions that if the, the scabbing and if the uh, symptoms of the disease are this or that, they have to be isolated or quarantined. If not, they give them a week and then they're triaged, basically. It's sort of like Old Testament triage. And they're said, you're in this category or in this category. But for people who had a certain level of contagious uh, skin disease, they were permanently quarantined and they had to wear things to prevent them from spreading the disease as, as well as um, giving uh, uh, distance. So they would have to say unclean if they were anywhere in the uh, nearby, uh, somebody who was not diseased. And so think of the life of one who had contracted this kind of disease, right? They were completely isolated from the community. And people were told if, if they touched someone with this or even came within breathing distance of them, 
they themselves in, in Leviticus 5, even if you unintentionally like bump into someone, you are ceremonially unclean and you yourself have to go through a process of being cleansed. So it's very serious, right? And someone's life who was in this was completely isolated. We th- they think about leper colonies. And again, this may not be exactly what we think of with that disease, but the idea of the isolation is real. And so for this person to come and to approach Jesus in and of itself would have been remarkable to someone reading this. This would have been startling to them. And so look at what this person says, this leper says in verse 2. Lord, if you will, or another way you could translate that word will is if you wish it. If you wish you can make me clean. When I read that, it makes me think that this person didn't doubt if Jesus had the power to, to whether he was willing to and wished to. I don't quite know how to get my head around that because the way I see Jesus, he wished to heal everyone. But I think something in that lepers is, is, I don't know, maybe being so far isolated from a community. Sometimes you and I can feel so distant from God and from others that it's, it's that whole idea of, well, if you want to be with me, if you, I mean, we feel so torn, so wounded by, in this case, the disease of leprosy, but sin can do that too. And he, and he says, if you will, if you wish it, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Let's not overlook that, right? He touched him. By Old Testament law, Jesus became ceremonially unclean the second he touched it. And make no mistake, Jesus knew the law. I don't know if the leper knew the law or not, but Jesus certainly did. He was a rabbi. He was well-known, and he touched him. Jesus knew something that the leper probably didn't know and those watching didn't know, which was the holiness of God is greater than the disease. And that Jesus wasn't going to become unclean. He was going to make this person clean. And this story should strike us because, guys, we live in a world of people who have the wounding and don't feel like God cares a rip about them. And they've decided they don't care anything about God. If, if, God's, if God's even around, he's just mad at them. And that disease of sin, like the leprosy, isolates them from a community of faith. Oh, they'll find other communities, but it's not like the community of light. And we, as the body of Christ, I think it is incumbent on us to be willing to touch people because you don't become unclean by touching people who are mired in sin. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in order to engage them and to eat with them and to be with them, people with whom you may disagree profoundly, people who maybe on, in an earthly sense you would just recoil at, you have the opportunity to be Jesus to them and to, and to touch them and to love them and to extend the healing that only comes in a relationship with Jesus. He touches him saying, I wish it. Just like we can't miss the fact that he says, 
He touched him. Let's not miss the fact that Jesus uses back to this person the words that he uses. If you will it or if you wish it. Is it your will? Is it your wish? And he says, yes, it is. And he touches him. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I don't know if immediately, I I know I've prayed for many people to be healed. And sometimes I think God has affected miraculous healing as I've prayed for them. And some, some of you have done the same thing. And sometimes not. Sometimes they haven't been raised up from their deathbeds or their healing. It, I don't know. I can't control that. But I do know that whenever someone asks for forgiveness of sin, Jesus cleanses them. That's 100%. Taking the second story of the centurion where Jesus sends his word and says, I don't need to go and touch your servant. And I'm going to talk about that story a little more in depth in a second. But make no mistake, those two stories are side by side for a reason. The second story tells us Jesus doesn't need to lay his hands on someone to heal them, right? He can send his word. There was no reason he had to touch the leper, right? He could have sent his word from two feet away. If it went all the way to the centurion's house, I'm pretty confident the signal would have been strong enough to get to the leper. (laughs) Right? It's a big watt. He's got a big watt radio station. He chose to touch him. Let's not miss that. We can choose to bless someone from afar, but sometimes it's just touching them. It may not be physical, but it may be engaging them in a way when people think, Again, Christians, for right or wrong, Christians sometimes have the rap of, well, you know, they, why would I want to go to church? I feel awful about myself anyway, right? I feel so terrible about myself. I mean, I just don't want to feel worse being with Christians. Let's not, let's not play into that. That's a stereotype in many ways, but let's not play into that. Let's be Jesus and touch people who might otherwise feel untouchable. The restoration was not only physical healing, but he's restored into community. Don't miss the fact the leper can now be restored to his family. He can be restored to the community of, of in, in whatever village he lived in. His whole life has changed. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. We learn in Luke that didn't work out so well. It's just hard not to say anything when that happens to you. But again, I think Jesus understood that the crowds were going to hinder him. But such is the case that sometimes that's what he had to deal with. But he says, and there are several things that uh, the law says you should do to be cleansed. One of them is showing yourself to the priest and offer a sacrifice that Moses commanded. And so uh, Jesus wanted to know this was a legit healing. So go offer, go show them, go, go do what the law commands. Then we have the second story of the faith of the centurion. As I say, the, the idea is, is that you have uh, a person who comes, asks for healing, not for himself, but for his servant. And he's very ill. And Jesus says, I'm going to come to you. And the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy. Centurion's not a Christian, not a Christian, not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He'd be a pagan. So he didn't want Jesus to even, maybe Jesus obviously would have come into his house and again become ceremonial unclean by entering the house of a Gentile. But he said, you know, I'll do it. Guy said, no, you don't need to. I understand authority. 
And that's the point of the second story, is that Jesus uh, had authority, and the centurion, being the leader of a hundred men, understood when he said go, those, those guys went. And he said, look, his, I'm sure his doctrinal position wasn't like he knew everything about the Bible. What he did understand was this. The word of God would affect the change asked for if Jesus spoke it. Get that? If Jesus spoke the word, it was going to happen. He had no doubt of that. He said, just speak the word. He turns around and he says, in all Israel, that's not a geographical Israel. He's not saying we think of Israel as a geographical. He's saying Jews. He's saying in the Jewish community, they want to argue and dicker about all these little things, these little, uh, you know, the, the rules and this and that. And he said, in all this, I find a Gentile who gets it. He gets it. When I say something as God, as I am fully God, fully man, when I say it, it's done. And then he says this, he says this interesting phrase. He says, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, and that is outside of the Jewish community, outside of the promised land. And they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is those who are truly of the kingdom, of, that believe in the kingdom of heaven. So already you have Jesus talking about, look, this isn't a Jewish thing. This is a God and mankind thing. In the same way, Jesus isn't for a certain kind of people and not for others. He's for all who would lay their lives down, all who would come and say, confess their need for him. In that place, oh, uh, verse 13, and the centur- to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And I don't think it was the proportion of his belief. He believed in the right thing. He believed in Jesus. Didn't come through anything else. And then finally, we have this third story, which we can miss because it's not as dramatic as these first two. It says, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand. The fever left her, and she rose up and began to serve him. A very simple story. What I think connects these three is this, is that, you know, when you go into, uh, if you read any leadership book and you go into a new environment, what you should do to influence change is find the decision makers, find the leaders, find those who are in the center and influence them, impact them, get them on your side. You're going in to run a business or run a department or whatever. Find out and those, you start with them. And I think it's striking and startling that Jesus goes to a woman, a mother-in-law who would have been in that society, well, not abused, certainly marginalized. He goes to a Gentile. He goes to a leper, the only one within the community who would have been totally outside. And Jesus starts not with those that would have been at the point of power, but he talks at those, and he spends time with people that other people would have cast aside. That's our Savior. That's so, that should be for us so compelling. I just want to close with a brief story. When Nancy and I were youth pastors and worship leaders in Central Florida, we took a group of students to an Indian reservation 
and uh, well, so adults and students actually, and we spent a week doing a short-term mission trip there. And toward the end of that week, some sort of virus or bacterial contagion uh, swept through the uh, the group. We had about, I think, it were a total of about a hundred of us. We are five different groups joined together to do this mission, and. I've never seen something spread so quickly. For those of you who are in the medical community, I'm sure you have. But we started, I think it was on about day four of seven. Somebody said, I don't feel so well, you know, had the symptoms that you would have uh, maybe on a mission trip, uh, typical. And they went, uh, they said, okay, well, we just, we, we, uh, said, okay, we'll just lie down, right? Well, best we could do was just, we had a nurse there, but we're, you know, we didn't know. And by about 12 hours later, there were about a dozen of the hundred were showing the same signs. And by the next morning, there were 20 of us still standing. There were 80 lying on the church floor and, and just in the groans and the, it, it was ugly. I'll just tell you, it was ugly. And um, I was one of the 20 and um I, I began to get it on the plane on the way home, so don't feel too good for me because it, it, it got us all eventually. And, you know, trying to minister sort of, I'm, I'm no Florence Nightingale, but doing the best you can to keep people hydrated and keep people, um, you know, kids that are in your care and responsible, it's a little bit of an overwhelming task when you feel like the fly, flies truly are dropping, you know, every few minutes. Somebody's like, it's got me, it's got me. And I look at something like these stories of, of the leprosy or the sickness or the sin, and you guys, it's got us. Sin, it says, has worked its way through all humans, and it manifests in a lot of different ways. And it manifests itself in us in, in the anger and the fear and the doubt and the alienation. And, and just, I don't know how it manifests in you, but sin manifests itself so many ways. And, you know, we could say in that situation at the Indian Reservation all we wanted, well, well, I'm, you know, it's, it's not going to get me um, just as, as long as we pretend it's not there. But that bacteria virus was virulent. It's probably, a, I don't know if it's the right word or not, but it's, it was bad. And sin is far worse. And it, it doesn't move from person to person like that virus did. It's infected the whole human race. And we think of ourselves first. And Jesus came and he said, I'm going to show you what the kingdom's like. I'm going to teach you what it means when we don't look out for number one, but when we die to ourselves and when we demonstrate the love of God and power and what it means and what it can mean to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God manifest. And then he demonstrates what he teaches. And he says, you don't have to live under the influence of Satan with all the power and the lust and the greed and the anger that it comes up. You don't have to live like that. You can be free. And the touch of Jesus, the word of Jesus, will free anyone. You're not marginalized. I don't care what society says about you. The Lord God of the universe loves you and you are in the center of his thoughts and he cares for you beyond all measure, beyond anything you can imagine. But you have to believe that in order to see and receive. If, 
if you won't come and say, Lord, if you will it, I'm yours. I can tell you what his response is. I wish it. His arms, the offer is extended. Whosoever will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I would ask you to be sensitive because if God's laid his hand on you and has chosen you, you, you need to just turn to him and just say, yes, God, I will. I will. When Jesus Christ died for each person on the earth, when he died for each one who trusts in him, when he died for each of his own, he took bread And as this group of 12 is gathered around him, his chosen disciples, he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. This wine is no longer the Passover cup. This wine, it's my blood. It shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you know you need your sins forgiven, this altar is open to you. If you know Jesus is the one, then you need to come and you need to taste of his goodness.